Bible Church family, it is wonderful to be back with you. Uh, as most of you know, a group from here uh, traveled to Israel to do some uh, touring over the last uh, week and a half or so. Uh, and as I sit here worshiping alongside of you, I I'll tell you this, it's incredible to get to go to Israel. I hope that that would be something maybe all of you would get to do at some point uh, in your life. It's, it's a wonderful experience to be able to walk where Jesus walked, to be able to see the, the stories of Scripture come alive in the context uh, of that land. But, but please know this, and I'm not saying that I mean this from the bottom of my heart. There is no place, I've been to Israel twice, there's no place that I've been in Israel, no, no empty tomb, no hill, no, no temple sign where I feel more the presence of Jesus than I do when I'm here with you, the saints of God at Nanswin River Baptist Church. What we do together here invites the presence of God into his people. So while that's fantastic to see, and I hope to get to go back one day, and I hope some of you will go back with me one day, now, there is nothing that compares to being with God's people in his church. And so it is, uh, I say this every time I come back from somewhere, uh, I miss you when I'm gone. And I am so grateful to be back with you. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Daniel chapter 5. In a moment, we will stand uh, and read the first few verses of that uh, together. But as you find your place and get your notes out, I want to remind you uh, that uh, this week you're going to have the opportunity, uh, several opportunities to meet and hear from Jadrian Haywood, who is our candidate for pastor of uh, adult discipleship and outreach. You were supposed to hear from him last Wednesday. Hopefully, uh, you were able to get the communication from us on Wednesday that there was uh, an unavoidable family emergency emergency in their family. Everybody is okay. Everything is good now, uh, but it was going to make it to where it would have been very difficult, if not impossible, for Jadrian to teach last Wednesday night. Uh, and so today, if you're a part of our strategic leadership team, we're going to have a meeting at three o'clock. And the second half of that meeting, you're going to be able to interact with Jadrian. And then at four o'clock, we want to invite everybody. I mean this, everybody. We would like to have you back here at four o'clock today. We will have childcare for preschool and below. So families, you don't feel like you have to wrangle your children during this time. And Jadrian will be in here. He's going to share his testimony and call the ministry. And it's an opportunity for the church to just ask him questions uh, and interact with him. And then Wednesday night, Night, what we were supposed to do last Wednesday, he will do this Wednesday, uh, teaching on the place of discipleship and outreach in the life of the church. And he's very excited to be able to uh, teach this coming Wednesday night. And then next Sunday morning, we'll be voting together as a congregation uh, on, uh, to affirm the uh, recommendation from our elders and our search advisory panel to call Jadrian as uh, a pastor here at Nansman River Baptist Church. And so we look forward to seeing you tonight, Wednesday, and then again next Sunday uh, as we uh, explore this uh, call and recommendation together. I'll now invite you to stand with me. For the sake of time this morning, I'm going to read the first uh, nine verses here of Daniel chapter 5, which really sets the scene uh, for the event that takes place here uh, in this chapter. This is the word of the Lord. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. 
Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king the interpretation Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It's enduring truth to us. Help us, God, to see today the handwriting on the wall. The same handwriting that centuries ago a final Babylonian ruler saw and understood that the judgment of God was at hand. Help us, God, to also see, together now as we explore in your word, that your judgment is sure, but your salvation is promised through Jesus alone. We ask in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. From this text comes a very familiar phrase for us. One that many of you have likely said, maybe even, I think, in our culture, not knowing where we get it from, we regularly say when something is certain and yet not yet so, we will use the phrase, the handwriting is on the wall. Maybe you left a job at some point in your life because you saw, you read the handwriting on the wall and you just knew that you had to get out of there. It's within that kind of context that we so often will use this phrase, not thinking, I believe, of where it comes from. And that phrase in our culture, the handwriting is on the wall, is rooted in one place and one place only. Daniel chapter 5, where the handwriting was not figuratively on the wall in the way that we use it, but was literally on the wall that a disembodied hand, the hand of God, appears in Babylon on the final night of that empire. It's important for us to remember the purpose of the book of Daniel. As we have walked through this book together, we've been reminded of these two facts that go hand in hand together. The first is that God is in control of all things, particularly in the book of Daniel, that God is in control of empires. That which is thought of as being the greatest empire on the planet, Babylon, will become Persia after this story. And through prophecy, the the empires that would follow it, Greece and Rome, that God raises up empires and emperors and God tears down empires and emperors. And the second idea is that his people, like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like these who are in exile in Babylon, practice their faith. Just faithfully go about their lives, doing what God has instructed them to do in the midst of these wicked empires. And 
They're supposed to practice their faith. These are stories of faith and stories of empires that are tied together because they encourage the people of God throughout the centuries to practice our faith no matter what comes because we can know and rest assured that God is in control. And that same theme that we have now traced to the fifth chapter of Daniel shows up again here that God is the one who is bringing about and tearing down empires while his people practice their faith. The setting of this story actually takes place many years after the previous accounts. Quite a bit of time has passed. Daniel is now towards the end of his life. Nebuchadnezzar, the king who has ruled for the first four chapters of Daniel, is dead. The last king of Babylon is now ruling. His name is not Belshazzar. It is actually uh, Nabonidus. Nabonidus, likely the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar, having married one of his fathers, is, if history, if what historians tell us is true, is actually the final king of Babylon. And up until around the 18, mid-1800s, people looked at Daniel chapter 5 and thought that Daniel had it wrong thought that the author of this book had it wrong because history had no place for a man named Belshazzar. There was no mention of him in the historical record, which, by the way, is pretty extensive in, at least for the ancient times, for the Babylonian Empire until an archaeologist discovers cuneiform writing in stone that begins to mention this man's name, and then another and another. And so up until 150 years ago, historians thought that Daniel was wrong, and what ultimately happens is archaeology proves that Daniel was right, that there was a man ruling in Babylon named Belshazzar, who was the son of Nabonidus. And his father had gone off into exile, and Belshazzar was ruling in his place. And even a few years before this event takes place, Nebuchadnezzar returns to Babylon, leaves his son. They kind of serve as co-regents together. And Nebuchadnezzar goes out to fight the Persians, Cyrus the Great, who is attacking from Persia, trying to take over the Babylonian empire. And his son remains there in the city of Babylon to rule in his place. So what historians thought was a fiction ultimately ends up being proven true over the course of time where God's word stands. And here it is this, as Daniel refers to him as a king, this co-regent, the son of the emperor, maybe great-grandson of Nebuchadnezzar through his mother, that Daniel interacts with on this last night of the Babylonian empire. Daniel is now an old man by this point. In Daniel chapter one, he is maybe a 15-year-old boy. At this point, I'm sorry, because I'm gonna call some people old, but at some point, you just have to embrace it, right? Daniel's in his 80s. I apologize to those of you that are in your 80s. But Daniel, Daniel's older at this point. This, this event likely takes place within the last two or three years of Daniel's life. We don't exactly know when Daniel dies, but this is close to the end of his life. And by what we'll see in the text, Daniel has become mostly forgotten 
These things that he had done and prophecies that he had made and interactions that he had had with Nebuchadnezzar because there were several Babylonian kings just in rapid succession that followed Nebuchadnezzar before we get to this, these, this final father and son duo. They had mainly forgotten who Daniel was. But here he is in his latter years going to interact once more with a final Babylonian ruler. What we see here in the setting of this text and from what takes place in Belshazzar's life through the writing on the wall is that God's judgment is certain. There is certainty of God's judgment, not only for the Babylonians, but for all people. So we're told of Belshazzar's grievous sin in verses one through four. We're told that he throws a party. A thousand people are invited to this party, we're told. And he drank wine in front of the thousand that, that it wasn't just that he had invited all of these people to come and party, but the king was celebrating with them. Now, we gotta keep the context of what's happening in mind here. This is a co-regent, his son, his father is off fighting the Persians. And what is he doing? He's celebrating. We don't know what he was celebrating. We just know he was celebrating. He was celebrating and he invited everybody to come and to celebrate with him. What we know from history is the Persians are knocking on the door and yet they're eating and drinking wine. And we're told that in verses two and three and four, what ends up happening is they he wants to celebrate in a really fancy way. And so he remembers that in the treasury are all of these gold and silver uh, you, gold and silver cups and plates and bowls that had been taken out of God's temple in Jerusalem. What? 70 years prior to this, 65, 70 years prior to this. And so he has all of these golden vessels brought in and they all drink wine together. And we're told as they're drinking out of the vessels from God's temple, they are in verse four, they are praising the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So while using that which God had been set apart by the people of God as holy for God, these pagans are using them to worship false gods. Now, this is not just one or two cups that are being brought in. When we, when we look throughout scripture, here's what we find. We kind of piece this story together. So we know from the end of 2 Chronicles that a bunch of stuff was taken out of the temple, was put into the treasury in Babylon. What we know from the beginning of Ezra is that Cyrus the Great allows people to, allows the Israelites to begin to go back and to rebuild the temple. And with them, we're told in Ezra 1, that they take 5,400 gold and silver vessels with them to, in their return to the temple. So this wasn't like one little cupboard stack of golden plates and golden cups. 5,400 gold and silver vessels are now being used by this final Babylonian king on the last night of his life to worship false gods. These things that had been set apart by God for his purpose are being used in idolatry. This is a grievous sin. But this is a common biblical illustration that people would eat and drink seemingly oblivious to the, their own pending destruction. 
Jesus in Matthew 24, looking forward to his second return, says this, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only. For as it was in the day of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving to marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be with the coming of the son of man. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus plays off a common biblical theme that the people of this world will just go on about their lives. It's what they did in the day of Noah. It's what they're doing here with Belshazzar. And it's what they will do at the end of time. We'll just be oblivious to the fact that the judgment of God is pending. And it is certain. And it is coming upon them. Now, here's what history also tells us. That the Persians come to the city of Babylon... On this night, the Persians come to the city of Babylon, which was heavily fortified, huge walls, but it had one flaw. The Euphrates River ran right through the middle of it. It ran under the, it ran under the wall, right through the dead middle of the city and out under the other wall. And so here's what the Persians did to ultimately conquer Babylon. The Persians went upstream a little bit, dammed the river, and walked into the city. There ended up being no one to fight them. You want to know why? Because a thousand of them were here partying with the king. That's why. The Persian army is at the door, representing the judgment of God. And the people are eating and drinking and blaspheming before God by using that which had been set apart for his worship in their idolatry. The judgment of God is certain. And now a sign of that judgment appears. And verses 5 through 9 tell us of this hand that verse 5 says, and this is an important word, immediately in that moment, while they were still parting, while revelry was taking place, while idol worship was rampant, the fingers of a human appeared in their midst and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And everyone saw it. And then what Daniel describes here in the following verses that we read at the beginning is great fear sets in on the king. And he, his, we're told that his color changes and that his limbs gave way and his knees knocked. This guy has gone ghostly white. He can't even control himself out of fear. Now, let's just be honest. If a hand appeared in the midst of our party and started writing something that we couldn't read on the wall, we would probably have the same exact reaction that Belshazzar has, right? He is, he is afraid because this is not obviously very normal at all. And then more fear sets in on him because he calls his wise men, the Chaldeans, he calls, he calls everybody together and he's like, okay, who can read this? And anybody that can read this, anybody can tell us what it means we're told that they're going to have in verse 7 the third rule in the kingdom now the reason it's the third rule normally the promise is the second rule right why is it the third rule here well because he was the second ruler remember his dad's still alive out fighting the persians in another place so he's number two so what he promises is you're going to be number three you're going to be right behind me whoever can do this and they come and they say we're not able to do that and this alarms them even more and everyone is perplexed but then someone likely his mother, remembers Daniel. And Daniel comes as the messenger of the Lord's judgment. Pick up with me in verse 10. The queen, this is not his wife, by the way. His wife, concubines, were in the party with him. This is most likely, I believe, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, who would have been his mother. 
because of the words of the king and his lord, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king called Belt. Uh, Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show uh, the interpretation of the matter, but I have heard that you can interpret, uh, you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a gold chain and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, Daniel, over the course of decades, clearly has kind of been relegated to a place of being forgotten in the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, who had exalted him, has passed. Other kings had ruled. And you'll notice Nebuchadnezzar is called Belshazzar's father in several cases here. This is in a general sense, so not directly his father, but in a general sense, his father, right, as genealogy goes. And while he has been forgotten, the queen remembers and says, here's this guy who's wise and Nebuchadnezzar had exalted because of this wisdom and because he spoke, they credit the false gods. We know it's the one true God speaking through him. And Daniel ends up being promised the same thing that Daniel's been promised on multiple occasions before. You do this, I'm going to make you powerful. Now, Daniel's an older man at this point. Again, likely in his 80s by this point. And once again, he's kind of being promised the same thing. And eventually what we're going to see by his reaction is none of that's very impressive to Daniel anymore. But here's, here's what I want us to dwell on for just a moment before we move forward. That this handwriting is now on the wall. This, this pronouncement of judgment is on the wall for this grievous sin that the king and his people have committed against the holy God. And one finally remembers, wait, there's a guy that can tell us who this is. And make no mistake of Daniel's role here. Daniel's role is that of a messenger of God's judgment. That this is going to be Daniel's final act in the Babylonian empire. To pronounce the judgment of God against the wickedness of the Babylonians represented in Belshazzar. Now the story changes because Daniel is now going to come in and begin to speak. And here's what we're going to see. The certainty of our lack of excuse that no, Daniel is going to be very clear here in his speech before the king that there is no excuse for what he did. And we, because of our sin, share in that lack of excuse. But he's going to slow things down and actually take a historical look of this, and it's important the reason that he does it. So what Daniel does in verse 17 is he begins by talking about the prideful errors of Nebuchadnezzar. Not of Belshazzar, but of Nebuchadnezzar. Look at, verse, look at verse 17 with me. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for your, yourself and give your reward to another. So again, Daniel in his 80s at this point is like, you just keep it, okay? <laughs> keep the purple, keep the gold, keep the authority. I don't care. You're not gonna survive the night anyway, okay? 
Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and language trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and set over it whom he will. So what does Daniel do? Again, Belshazzar trembling, white as a ghost, can't even stand. Nobody can interpret. This disembodied hand is written on a wall. They say there's somebody that can. Daniel comes in. Daniel says, keep your prizes, but let me tell you a story. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what's on the wall yet. I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't have done what you did. I'm going to tell you why you should have known better. And he looks back on Daniel 4, which had happened a generation before. This was not yesterday. It seems like yesterday in the text. But it was not yesterday. It was at least maybe three decades before. He says, your father, meaning generations before you, he would have known this. Belshazzar would have, would have known of the story, that there was a period of time in Nebuchadnezzar's life, which Pastor Michael preached for us last week from Daniel 4, when God humbled the emperor of Babylon, humbled him to the point where he lived like a wild man, like a beast out in the fields because his pride was great. And here's what God did for Nebuchadnezzar and what Daniel slowing the story down for Belshazzar says you should have known better because of what the one true God did to your father Nebuchadnezzar. You should have known better in his pride. He thought himself greater than God, and God humbled him. And here's what we know from Scripture. Proverbs 16 tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. So the question then is, is judgment only for those who are proud? Because we experience proud people in our culture, just like they were experiencing the pride of the emperors in their culture. But listen, it's not just the people that we would identify as proud as having judgment. And here's why. Because let's just trace this with me. What is his ultimate sin here? If we, if we go back, right? Daniel's attributing it to pride, the sin of Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately the sin of Belshazzar is pride. But what is pride? Pride is idolatry. Right? They're, this is, they're worshiping idols. They're worshiping idols because they're proud. They're worshiping idols because they think they know better than the Lord. So listen, all sin ultimately is idolatry. And all idolatry ultimately is pride. It's us thinking we know better. And that falls on every one of our shoulders. Every one of us at some point in our lives have thought we know better than God. And that we're going to go our own way and do things the way that we want to do it because we know better. That's the pride of Nebuchadnezzar and it is the pride of Belshazzar and it is idolatry deserving the judgment of God. Then Daniel moves on to the prideful heirs of Belshazzar. Pick up in verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart 
though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which did not see or hear or know, but the God who in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel says your pride has manifested itself in idolatry and you have worshiped that which is not real and the very God who holds your life and your breath you have offended. Belshazzar failed to learn from the mistakes of the generations past. He should have learned. He should have known that the judgment of God was coming upon him. He was without excuse. And this is an important point for us to recognize today. So are we. Every person alive, every person who has ever lived, the scripture says they are without excuse In Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. This is why David looks at Belshazzar and says, let me tell you a story about Nebuchadnezzar because you should have known better. And hear me today, friend, we all should have known better. There is no one in this world alive today. There is no one in this world who has ever lived, who has an excuse before God. We all should have known better. And yet we chose our own way. We chose our own path. In our pride, we chose idolatry over worshiping the God who holds our breath and our ways in his hand. We are all Belshazzar, who should have known better. Finally, the certainty of our failure. Now, Daniel is now going to move to what's written on the wall. And in verse 25, we're told that four words are written on the wall. These words would have been written in Aramaic. Now we're not sure if it's just that the, because they all would have spoken Aramaic, this section of Daniel, unlike most of the rest of the Old Testament, is actually written in Aramaic. And this would have been the spoken and written language of the Babylonian empire. They would have known it. So whether they could actually read the writing on the wall or just couldn't understand the interpretation is unknown, but they certainly do not know why this disembodied hand has has appeared in their, in their midst and written four words, mene, mene, two words, the same word twice, tekel, and then parson. So what are these words? Just because these are actual real words in Aramaic. This isn't some sort of mystery as far as the words themselves. These were common words in the Babylonian empire because they were both weights of measure and of currency. Mene is the Aramaic word for mina, which was Again, a unit of currency. It was a large unit of currency. It was 60 shekels. It's also used as a term for a large amount of weight. 
And that word appears twice. And then the word tekel, which is the Aramaic word for shekel, uh, again, a unit of currency, the most common unit of currency that existed during that time and onward into even the time of Jesus. Again, one sixtieth of amina. And then a parson, again, a, a unit of measurement, but also a, uh, a unit of currency was half a shekel. But Daniel doesn't use them as nouns. He doesn't use, when he translates this for the king, he doesn't say them in their noun form, meaning their currency or weight form. He uses them, he speaks them in a, what's known as a passive participle. A participle is a verb, right? It's passive, meaning the action is being done by someone else on the hearer. So a verb that is being acted upon. So someone else is doing the action. Who's doing the action here? God is the one doing the action. And so Daniel takes these words that are nouns, he changes them, changes them into verb forms, and they say this, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. That that's the, that's the judgment of God, that when these, these units of measure and currency are turned into verbs, they're measured, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. So let's take all three and look at them one at a time. First, the numbering of days. Verses 24 through 26. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. The first thing that the disembodied hand of God writes there in that Babylonian temple is numbered, numbered, saying to The king, God has numbered the days of the Babylonian empire. God has numbered your days as its ruler. So, and this is why it is is written twice. This is why it appears in this this four-word inscription on the wall. The first two words are the same to to, to, uh, emphasize the fact that this is sure and true, that it has happened, that the number is not negotiable, that the fall of the Babylonian empire, the fall of Belshazzar and his father in their rule was certain, it was numbered, that God himself is the one who did the numbering. There is not an empire in this world that has existed a single day longer than God has intended for it to last. And let's individualize this for a minute. There is not a single human being who has lived on this world for one breath longer than God has intended him or her to live. Empires, their days are numbered. Humans like Belshazzar, our days are numbered. And this is what the beginning of the inscription means. Your days are numbered. Then we get to the second idea, weighed. Tekel, a shekel, a, a, a unit of measurement that your life has been weighed. We're told in verse 27, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Now, to be weighed in the balance and found wanting means that something is placed on one end of the scale and something that it is weighed against, that is judged against, is placed on the other end of the scale. And so in ancient times, all the way up until really the digital age, this is how things were weighed and measured, that something that was known to weigh a a certain uh, amount was placed on one end of a scale and that which is being weighed against was placed on the other. And this is what Daniel says. Daniel says, 
Belshazzar, you have been placed on the scale and you have been weighed against something and you have come up short. Now, what is it that he was weighed against? He was weighed against the holy moral law of God himself. That the deeds of Belshazzar are placed in the scale and the holiness of God is placed on the other end and he has been found wanting. He has failed, but he alone is not the only one who has failed. When compared to the righteousness of God, we all fail. And this is why Paul writes in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hear me today, friends, if your idea of facing God and his judgment at the end of your life is to step on a scale and say, look at all the good I have done. Know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. You will fall short. You will fall short. And yet so many millions and millions of people have gone to judgment of God, relying on their own works to save them. And not a single soul has survived. Not a single one, when compared to the righteousness of God, will ever live up. There's not enough good you can do. And you could say, well, I didn't take the holy cups out of the treasury from the temple. I didn't worship that which God had said, don't worship. I didn't do any of those things. Sure you have. Sure you have. Because of our own pride, we have all turned to idolatry, just as Belshazzar had done, just as Nebuchadnezzar had done, just as everyone else had done. And we are all weighed in our deeds, and our deeds have fallen short. And the final word is the execution of judgment. Look at verse 28. Perez, Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This is the final judgment, divided, half of a shekel. It's divided. And then notice what happened. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel didn't want all these things. Belshazzar does it anyway, but it doesn't matter because that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. The judgment of God was sure. In Belshazzar's life, the judgment of God was sure in the kingdom of Babylon. In the kingdom of Babylon, and that very night, he was weighed, he was measured, he was found wanting, and he experienced the judgment of God. So what? The judgment of God is certain, but in Jesus, sinners find forgiveness. Listen, this is not just a message of condemnation and judgment because the scriptures are not a message of condemnation or judgment. The scriptures are a message of great hope in the face of condemnation and judgment. And this is a message of that great hope that while Belshazzar had missed it, while Belshazzar was found to be guilty and to found to not measure up and neither will we, we have a great hope in Jesus. But let me start here because I recognize there may be some in this room or watching with us online that that say, are you sure that's coming for me? I'm a relatively good person. This is the way Americans tend to think about ourselves. We tend to think about ourselves as relatively good people. And I say relatively good people because we look at really bad people and we say, well, I hadn't done that, right? I hadn't murdered anybody. You know, I I hadn't done those things that really bad people have done. So relatively, I'm a good person. Listen to Romans 2. Therefore... 
You have no excuse. Again, Paul picking up on this idea. We all, none of us have excuse. You have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. So when you look at that really bad person and you say, well, I'm relatively good because I haven't done what they did. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, by doing that, you're removing your own excuse. For passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves because the judge practiced the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? Hear me clearly today, folks. The handwriting is on the wall for you. God's judgment is sure. And far too many of us place our hope in that which Paul says we should not place our hope in. Is God kind? Yes, absolutely. Is, does God, is God long-suffering? That's what that word forbearance means. Yes, is God patient? Absolutely. But should we look at that and say, well, because of that, God's gonna look on my good deeds and judge that somehow I measured up? Paul says no, because the forbearance and kindness and goodness and love of God is intended to draw all of us, every one of us, to repentance. Far too many are hoping in something in which there is no hope. Apart from faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. We will all fall short. And know this, his judgment is sure in your life. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all stand before a righteous, holy judge who is on one end of the scale and we will stand on that other end and here's what we know. We will all fall short. And here's what I believe. None of us have any clue just how short we will fall. It will be far more than we could ever imagine. Nobody gets close. That's what I'm trying to say, okay? Nobody's getting close. You know, you picture those old scales and, you know, it kind of teeters back and forth a little bit. When we stand on the scale and God's righteousness is on one side and our good deeds are on the other side, there's no teetering back and forth. We don't even get close. I hope I've gotten your attention. Because if you're relying on your own works, as Belshazzar was, you have been weighed and measured and found wanting and the judgment of God is sure. So as I'm preparing this this week, I, I put this out online. There was, there was a scene from a movie that just kept going on over and over in my head. And maybe as I read through some of this, if you're familiar with the movie, maybe you thought about it too. It's a movie that was, I don't know, maybe it's 15 years old now or so. It's called A Knight's Tale. It takes place back in, you know, medieval Europe. Uh, the late Heath Ledger stars in this as a fake knight named Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein. And in the end, he and his uh, kind of merry band of protagonists are standing over the story's antagonist after his defeat. And they're all looking down on him. And they actually quote from Daniel 5. Together, they say, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have absolutely been found wanting. But then Sir Ulrich, Heath Ledger, stands then over and says something that I'm not, ensure, I'm not sure that the writers of this story intended, but they preach the gospel in this moment. And he looks down over him and he says, welcome to the new world. May God save you 
if it is right that he should do so. Here's the truth. We have all been weighed. We have all been measured. And we have all been found wanting. And yet God chooses to save us. God has deemed in his wisdom that it is right for him to redeem mankind from our sin. This is why Jesus says in John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Yes, on your own, you have been weighed, measured, and found wanting. But there is great hope in Jesus today that if you will come to him in faith and repentance, you will not stand on that scale on your own, but the righteousness of Jesus will stand in your place. And through him, through him and him alone, not him and you, not him and your church attendance, not him and your good deeds, not him and your mission trips, not him and anything else you could stack up on it, but him and him alone standing in your place will measure up to the holiness of God and you will be saved in the day of judgment, my friend. Oh, what hope. Oh, what glorious hope we have through the sacrifice of Jesus saving us from the scales that we could never measure up to on our own. So friend, rest in that today. Rest in that hope today that yes, the handwriting of God's judgment is on the wall, but Jesus stands between you and it and applies his righteousness to your life. If you've never put your faith in Jesus to stand in your place, if you've always thought, well, maybe I'm going to be good enough one day, know this, he died for you so that you might live. He died for you so that you, he might stand in your place. If you will but come to him in faith and repentance today, he did not come into the world to condemn it. He did not come to you, my friend, to condemn you, but he came into this world. He came to you that you might be saved through him. Believe in Jesus today. And when the day of judgment comes, he stands in your place and you have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Oh, for the goodness of God and the salvation of sinners that we all stand condemned Belshazzar stood condemned all those years ago, having been weighed and measured and found wanting, our days numbered, and yet Jesus, dying in our place, provides an opportunity for his righteousness to be substituted for our wickedness. Thank you, God, that in your wisdom, you deemed it right to do so, to save men and women and boys and girls from their sin. Would one who does not believe this, had not believed this today, believe it now in the salvation we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in a moment, we're going to sing an old hymn, a familiar hymn for many of us, Just As I Am. And here's why. Because that's all we bring. We bring nothing good. But Jesus takes us as we are, changes us into something brand new. As we sing that, maybe... The Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and you call out to him for the first time today in faith and repentance. At the end of our service, would you come and let me know of that? We'd love to help you walk in repentance and obedience to him. Let's stand together and worship the one who has given his life for us today.